and this is Anatomy of Change, a podcast series about the struggle and connection in making courageous change in the systems and structures that threat our lives. On the season one finale of Anatomy of Change. As I listened to Jamie, I couldn't help but feel an eerie connection between the idea of divine-inspired patriarchy within the church and the making of our American caste system, constructed by our history of slavery. Did she see it too? More and more people are raising awareness of the role of enslaved women. Women's reproductive labor was a big part of, of the slave trade. You know, that, that men, you know, white men who owned slaves were breeding new slaves. And so I think there's, there's a lot of tie in there with economy, with product. You know, when they stopped importing, so to speak, slaves, uh, one of the reasons they, they, they did it not because of some kind of benevolence, but because they wanted to breed their own, you know, on the soil. And so there's some really interesting ties. I think, I think it's really important that Catholics in particular understand that. Thomas Jefferson, one of the founding fathers and our third president of the United States, was a slave owner. And Sally Hemings, just like her mother before her, was a slave. Sally Hemings bore six children by Thomas Jefferson. Four survived to adulthood. Three sons, Beverly, Madison, and Eston, and one daughter, Harriet. They did not inherit Jefferson's privilege or rights as a white man. They were capital in the American political economy, legally a form of property. Their retreat was that they were held a cast peg above other slaves at Monticello. My conversation with Father Thomas, he compared the unborn to a slave, but not the woman. Understanding our history of slavery in America, both a woman and the unborn, if a girl, would be foretold to be raped and bear children of their masters, fueling human slavery, black slavery in America, bodies oiled, poked, and prodded to be sexualized and owned, a commodity. Catholics are the first, you know, conservative Catholics, priests, are the first to yell about eugenics and are first to get upset that, well, all the Planned Parenthood clinics are in poor black neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Well, that's eugenics. Well, no, you know, um, black women have been trying to control their fertility since before they arrived here. Mm-hmm. And they're still trying to control their own fertility. And we should allow them to, that's their narrative to tell. That is not the narrative of a conservative, well-fed, young white male priest to decide. Mm-hmm. If you want to know about that, talk to black women. They will tell you how they feel about having the opportunity to control their own fertility. And the fact that whenever abortion laws, these restrictive abortion laws are passed, the fact is it does disproportionately impact the poor and people of color. The church is really participating in this very old racist system of taking away from the poor and people of color the ability to control their own fertility. When it comes to this question of eugenics, we have to let BIPOC people control the narrative about their fertility and their choices about what to do with their bodies. 
The history and lessons of slavery sheds light on the deep convictions of pro-choice women to make decisions over their own body and rights to their future. This is something I've been trying to stress um, to the Biden administration, to Catholics who will listen, Mm -hmm. is that um, we have a preferential option for the poor in the Catholic tradition. That means that the poor, the marginalized, the vulnerable, the powerless should be given the best of everything. Not equal to what privileged people get, Mm -hmm. the best, better. And, you know, the, the fact is that these laws cause even greater harm. It make They make the sick sicker, they make the poor poorer, they make the powerless even more powerless. Mm-hmm. The whole system of racism that we are trying to reckon with mm-hmm. today goes back to the fact that white people do not believe that they have power over black bodies, that black bodies aren't human, and that we have the right to control them. And so every time you try to make that argument about eugenics, you are reinforcing the fundamental problems of white supremacy. Mm, That's powerful, Jamie. There is an incredible irony to me, hypocrisy at the border going on where there have been multiple stories about forced sterilizations of women detained by ICE. And the anti-choice, pro-life, Catholic movement has nothing to say about it. And to me, that that shows you everything. That shows the true colors. That shows the value. Mm-hmm. It does. It shows the racism behind yeah. this. Uh, it shows the fact that uh, the church does not see these people as fully human. Right. And where, so where are these people, these pro-life, pro-motherhood, pro-family people allowing women to get sterilized? You know, they're, they're just mm. doing hysterectomies on these women and these women do not know what's happening to them. Where is it? This should be the issue that gets them, you know, lit up, right? Yeah. And they don't care. And that to me just again shows the true colors. Is that what is this really about? What's really driving these people? Ah, oh, Jamie, it's that value we place on certain people. Yeah. Yeah. The commoditization of people. Yes. Yes. And that white people are of greater value and are truly human. So how does this extend to gender between men and women in the church today? In its fundamental theology, it does not believe men and women are equal. Um, It believes that men and women have complementary roles. uh, And that God, this is God's intent, this is God's purpose for humanity, is that men are, God wants men to lead, to take initiative, to be the head of things, Mm-hmm. And women are meant to serve and to nurture, yeah, uh, to be a vessel for the man. And what the Catholic Church says is we know this because of the way God has designed bodies, the way God designed penises and vaginas. It's really that basic and biological. That's why I was saying earlier about the reductiveness of the interpretation mm-hmm. of nature. This is it at its core. 
So not only do, does, does the Catholic Church have this very ugly history of not thinking BIPOC people are fully human, they also don't think women are fully human. And that has led them to disempower and limit the freedom, you know, of, of people who aren't male uh, and people who are not white. That is why we, you know... That's I, a lot I, to chew on. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it is, but it's so important. If you're going to understand the whole reason the Catholic Church limits women's freedom and power, it goes back to their understanding of God's purpose for humanity, God's purpose for men and for women. Yeah, it's that divine will. How do you have an argument because there is no argument that the church would have. Right. The other thing I would want to say about Catholic charities and all of that is that something that not enough people realize is that Catholic healthcare is exceedingly powerful, not only in the U.S., but in the world. They are the largest non-governmental provider of healthcare in the world. Mm -hmm. One in six hospital beds belongs to the Catholic Church. Wow. Um, and in many cases in poor rural areas globally and even within the U.S., they are the only healthcare system or clinic available. So what does that mean? If you end up at a Catholic-run healthcare facility, mm -hmm. you're not going to get some basic services. You're not going to get access to contraception. You're certainly not going to get access to abortion. You're not going to get a tubal ligation. If you're trans, you may be denied certain forms of care. Mm -hmm. uh, even, you know, end-of-life care has to go by Catholic directives, and that can be pretty, pretty rough. Because the Catholic Church really believes in death taking a very natural course. And so, one of the things we're trying to, trying to draw attention to is a lot of people, particularly in poor and rural areas, don't realize they're at a Catholic hospital. The, the hospital doesn't disclose it. So people say there's a woman gives birth at a Catholic hospital and she wants a tubal ligation. She's not going to get it. So we mm -hmm. have run into some really terrible stories where women bleeding have left one hospital to go to another to get services. And where you really see this become a life or death issue is in the global south mm. where, you know, access to contraception is a life or death matter. If you're in the Philippines, yeah, you know, which is one of the poorest countries in the world. And one of the reasons they're one of the poorest countries in the world is they are so Catholic mm -hmm. and that bishops have such enormous power legally and political influence that the bishops fought for 15 years against the Reproductive Health Act. Why did they need it? Because people are poor. Because families wanted to be able to control the timing and number of births because that was mm -hmm. justice. They wanted to be able to feed and educate the children that they had. Yeah. And so many Filipino women have been forced to send their young sons into the slums to live because they couldn't care for them. The ecosystem is being destroyed. Uh, they set off dynamite in the ocean to try to kill fish because they're starving. This is mm. all can be rooted back to the Catholic ban on contraception. You know, we think in this country, I think sometimes, especially Catholics think, oh, well, the church is banned on contraception. That ship has sailed. No, mm -hmm. this is a lot. These have life or death consequences throughout yeah. the global south. Women bleed to death every day because they couldn't get access to contraception or abortion care because of Catholic doctrine.
Beyond the Reproductive Health Act, there is also the Global Gag Rule that prohibits foreign non-governmental organizations called NGOs who receive U.S. global health assistance from providing legal abortion services and referrals. The rule forces organizations to choose whether to provide comprehensive sexual and reproductive health care and education without U.S. funding or comply with the policy in order to continue accepting U.S. funds. In 2017, President Donald Trump expanded the global gag rule, which meant it removed funding for things like HIV and AIDS programming and health systems that support water, sanitation, and hygiene, totaling nearly $9 billion. According to studies published by the World Health Organization, the impact was not less abortion, and instead the increase of unsafe abortion and negative impacts by denying maternal, newborn, and child health programs. By denying funds, it disrupts decades of work to integrate sexual and reproductive health services for things like HIV and AIDS around the world. This didn't start with President Trump. It has been a back and forth of enacting and retracting since the time of Ronald Reagan. This is a case where this is thrown around like a political football. Every time a a president is inaugurated, the first thing he does is change, either rescind the global gag rule or put it back into effect. So Biden Mm -hmm. rescinded it. And what it really is about is women bleeding to death. Women being, you know, having too many children. Women getting fistulas. This is what, when I think of the global gag rule, that's what I see in my head. A lot of people see this as a compromise that you can use, you know, to appease. There was a writer who said, well, Biden should pay back uh, pro-life Democrats by not rescinding the global gag rule. I said, how craven and cruel is that? Mm-hmm. Here's this guy sitting, you know, he used to work for the Obama administration. He's privileged, you know, he's got everything he needs. And he's trying to say that this, uh, that women who desperately need abortions, who will die without an abortion, who desperately need contraceptive access, should be denied that to pay back white wealthy people? I mean, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's sick. Put a human face on the global gag rule. Mm-hmm. Understand that limiting reproductive choice has a horrific disproportional impact on women and other vulnerable people that this is not just a political issue. Uh, this is about giving access to reproductive care to the people who need it most. We need to start thinking about what their lives are like and what they suffer and what choices they have to make. That's something I try to drive home. That's why I say the church's teachings make the poor poorer, the sick sicker, mm-hmm. disempower the powerless. Think about if you're in a Catholic refugee camp and you get raped. That young woman is not going to get an abortion. She's going to be forced to give birth because she's in a Catholic-run refugee camp. It's unjust. It's cruel. It it, it is, you know, it it harms the poorest the most. It harms the most vulnerable the most. And that's what keeps me up at night. I think of Melinda Gates' story about contraception in Africa. Yes. And really testing her belief. And the Pope called her. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it really challenged her belief to say, but 
these women can't take a condom back to their husband and say, wear this. Yeah. So for them, it was the just decision for contraception for that woman to take it in her hands. Yes. Because she couldn't imagine having that conversation because there it means, do you have AIDS? Yes. Why are you asking me to wear this? Right. And so it's that also talking about the complexity of the issue, but just the different questions we have to ask ourselves, not just being in the U.S., but around the world, about what are the conditions of these societies and um, access and how we place value on women. Yes. Wow. And how the Catholic understanding of men and women makes women unable to say no very often in Mm. very patriarchal societies. This is why I have played this very long, intensive game on women's ordination in the Catholic Church. (laughs) It's, you know, I have said a million times that, you know, women's ordination is about more than making women priests. Mm -hmm. It's about forcing the most powerful institution in the world with diplomatic relations with every country in the world to say men and women are equal. What that would do, that would revolutionize the world. That would change the world because women suffer disproportionately from lack of food, lack of education, you know, an over the overwhelming amount of violence and trafficking because patriarchal societies say that they are not equal to men. And what if the church, with its rock star charismatic pope, said, mm-hmm. you know what? What pressure would that put on the world, patriarchal societies, if the church said that? It would be extraordinary, but instead you have a church that says God does not believe you are equal. It's God's plan that you are not equal. What do you hope for the Pope? Oh, gosh. (laughs) This man is my cross. Uh, (laughs) <laughs> it was easier with Benedict the Sixteenth because what you saw was what you got. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah, he was, you know, uh, very, very conservative. But you never had to question what was going on. He was mm-hmm. always very clear. Um, Francis is—he uh, is the papal paradox mm-hmm. uh, because in one document he'll say uh, women should have equal pay. But then he'll say, you know, women should be put on a pedestal or women should be, you know, women are, women are born to nurture the family mm-hmm. and serve the family and men, you know, men are meant to lead, you know, he'll mm-hmm. say, uh, you, oh man, he drives me wild. Uh, <laughs> you know, he, he, you know, he just, you know, he'll say things that seem really pro LGBT. Mm-hmm. But then at the same time, he'll say that a man and woman in marriage is God's plan for humanity, is God's masterpiece. Yeah. You know, so when he says that, he's pitting same-sex couples against opposite-sex right. couples, and he's saying one of you is worthy of God's blessing and one of you is not. Yeah. Your love is holy and your love is not. That's not helpful. You know, I'd rather just tell me the truth of how you feel about me. Don't pretend I need mercy for being gay. I don't need mercy for being a lesbian. I need justice mm-hmm. and I need equality in my church. Yeah. The only way things are going to get better with Francis is if we can dismantle 
his understanding of gender complementarity, this understanding that there were particular roles for men and for women. Mm. Um, he's also very anti-trans. I know that there are stories yeah. given to us secondhand that he met a trans woman or this, that. He's never said anything pro-LGBTQ on record. The only seemingly pro-LGBTQ things he has said have been told to us through hearsay. We've never heard him actually say it, and he's certainly never written any of it down. I can't find hope in that. Right. Right? Well, and Father Thomas, he kind of skirted over that, but clear about transgender rights. And that was just so conflicting. If this is the faith that you're supposed to look to for love and compassion and, you know, God is love— you know, you're creating exclusivity and mm-hmm. and separation from God's children. Yeah, exactly. And that is, to me, the ultimate sin is separating God from God's beloved child. Um, mm-hmm. and, and they do it all the time. It, it's so harmful and so painful. But the reason, you know, women face this kind of shame around sexuality and around their reproduction is the same reason LGBTQ people receive shame for their love, is the same reason that trans people are told that they are working against nature. It's all wrapped up in this understanding of gender complementarity that the church has a very, very radical commitment to. Until we can dismantle that idea of gender roles, we're not going to get justice. And that is what I hope for Francis, is that he can see it. He's he still very much believes in gender complementarity, sadly. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is the thing that has to change if we're going to get justice in the church. And once that changes, everybody's going to get justice. Yeah. <laughs> That's why they have to stay so rigidly consistent. Because they know if there's even one little crack, one little yeah. opening, everything has to be called into question. And that scares them to death. So do you call yourself a Catholic? I mean, you're Catholic, obviously, but what yeah. makes you still feel like you're Catholic versus another religion? Is it because it's a bit of, I'm going to show you, you can't take away my faith? I wish it were just being obstinate. It really isn't. <laughs> um, some days it would be easier. There'd be less of a struggle. Um, and uh. I think this is why people struggle with me. Uh, uh, because and th- this goes back to what I was saying much earlier about being at Yale Divinity School, being surrounded by 40 different kinds of mm-hmm. Christian denominations and thinking I was going to leave and become something else like Episcopal or mm-hmm. Lutheran. And instead, just being convinced that I need to fight for the mm-hmm. soul of this church so what did I figure out at Yale Divinity School? Well, I was really struggling in my, my early days there. And I, I just noticed that all my classmates who were not Catholic just had a different way of talking about God. I was trained to think that God was very much imminent. God was very much in the stuff of the world. God was very accessible. Mm-hmm. And my Protestant friends were talking about God as if God were in another realm. Mm. Um, somehow, you know, redeeming us and, and, and helping us with our salvation and um, justifying us. And I, <laughs> well, what on earth is going on? I've been studying theology since I was 12. I don't know this God they're referring to. So, I was in a real crisis. I had a full scholarship and I was ready to give it up. 
And someone said to me, you know, there's a Catholic nun who teaches here. She helps the Catholics in crisis. You should talk to her. Wow. I said, okay. So her name was Sister Margaret Farley. And she's, I, I made an appointment with her. And I said, I am having so much trouble. I think I have to leave here. I don't think I'm, I'm suited for this. And she said, what's going on? And I said, you know, my classmates are talking about God in a way I have never spoken about God. I know, you know, the God of Teilhard de Chardin, who, who is stretched through the cosmos, or the God of Dorothy Day, you know, Christ mm -hmm. who's embodied in a prostitute. Um, Thomas Merton, who sees everyone radiant and shining like the sun. That's the God I know. And she said, oh, Jamie, she said, don't go anywhere. Just stay at Yale. She said... <laughs> You just have a sacramental imagination. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, Catholics have this innate sense that God is everywhere and God is in all things and that we have this very dynamic relationship with God and mm -hmm. that God speaks God's word in all creation. And it changed my life. Um, yeah. and, and in my own work with the poor, my work with the homeless, that was so true. You know, I would see the crucified Christ uh, and all of my homeless friends. And I don't say that in a way that fetishizes the poor, because I can't no, stand I when Catholics do that. It drives me crazy. Mm -hmm. um, but the reality that what we're told in Matthew 25, which is that God truly dwells among the poor and among the vulnerable and among the broken, that's where God lives. And that it's our, our vocation in life has to be to liberate them from the margins. And so that changed my life, this notion of sacramental imagination. Mm -hmm. A sacramental view of the world. I have it. I can't get rid of it. It's the only thing that brings meaning to my life. It's the mm -hmm. only way I can understand God. And Jamie went on to aid her mentor, Margaret Farley, in co-funding the All-Africa Conference, Sister to Sister, which supports religious women who minister to those suffering from the HIV-AIDS pandemic. Jamie also edited and wrote the introduction to her mentor's collection of writings, Changing the Questions, Explorations in Christian Ethics. And this is not to say that, and I know this for a fact, being born Catholic doesn't give you a sacramental view of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, I know many Catholics who actually are much more Calvinistic, who see the world as light and darkness, and that, and that the things of the earth are, are you know, distractions uh, and traps. That's not Catholicism. There's a lot of Catholics who think like that, and that is not Catholicism. Catholicism has this, not under, this belief that grace is constantly perfecting nature, and that all God is revealed in all things in nature. People, places, food, uh, candles, everything can be a sacramental when you're Catholic. It's this very, very dynamic, revelatory universe that I delight in, and I find hope and joy and meaning in. And so no one's going to take that from me. Um, mm -hmm. I think that the people who are telling me I'm not Catholic don't don't understand the tradition very well. I think wow. they have much more of a Calvinist black and white universe that is not true to the tradition. I love that. Thanks. What would you say to the Anne and the Jens out there about whether they know and and are sure of their decision. And it doesn't even have to be Anne and Jen. It could be women that have come through it and are pro-life and they feel different in their position. But what would you want the people that, what would you say to the Anne and Jens 
about their struggle, their worthy struggle, what would you want them to know? You know, I would want them to know that no one can separate God from God's beloved. No one has that power, and anyone who says they do is committing magical thinking, as far as I'm concerned. I would tell them to keep telling their story, that their story is sacred, that their story needs to be heard. Um, Because, unfortunately, Catholic leadership right now just creates taboos, and that doesn't serve anyone. We, the, the church needs to hear the voices of women who go through this struggle. It is morally complex, but the answer is not to make it taboo and shut it down. Mm. The answer is to engage it. We do trainings at Catholics for Choice. Um, and we, take, we have an eight-hour module in which we get people to think very deeply about abortion. There are people who come away from that training having more questions about abortion and questioning, you know, its morality. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. something that we agree to, you know. Mm-hmm. We're, not, we're not afraid of that because we believe in individual conscience. And so I would, I would honor those women for using their conscience and being so courageous in doing that. I think what their story tells us is that These are sacred choices that people have to make for themselves and that their conscience has to be the final arbiter. And no one should be allowed to impose their religious beliefs on anyone else. Mm -hmm. You know, if a woman comes away from this, her own abortion being more anti-choice, that is her experience, that's her journey. But that doesn't mean you can take the right away from other people. You know, we have freedom of religion, freedom, you know, we we have the right to be free of other people's beliefs. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's the real problem, is that there are too many examples, and they're getting worse and worse, of Catholics and Christians imposing their beliefs on others Mm -hmm. through legal remedies. Uh, And, you know, they're they're infringing on civil rights. We're not in a theocracy. So uh, that, that's really what I would say is, is I honor them and I respect them and, and I hope that they'll continue to have that courage to tell their story because it will change hearts and minds. This next conclave, this next papal election will be very consequential to see if the church is going to go one way or the other. You know, uh, it's never been more... Um, you know, it, it's never been more, uh, black or white, I'm afraid to say, you know, uh, but, you know, the church is going to have to decide if it wants to be a small, pure, uh, church mm-hmm. or it wants to really, really open itself up and do the best work it can. That's the sad thing for me about the Catholic yeah. church is like, it does this incredible work. My whole understanding of justice was shaped through a Catholic lens and the nuns, you know, the women religious. Mm-hmm who, to me, are the best of the church, mm. you know, and then you see this, this menacing side of this power, power-hungry, menacing side that really wants to limit women and, and queer people, um, and it's heartbreaking, because I know how good it could be, because mm. uh, I see so, I've seen so much good in it, and, and yeah. what is unique and beautiful and true, so it is in many ways a struggle for the soul of the church. Mm. 
when I was 14 and I had this calling to the priesthood, my mother called up the diocese of Rockville Center on Long Island and made the vocations director meet with me. She's like, <laughs> he awesome. needs to meet my daughter. That's <laughs> Listen awesome. to her calling. Um, so I think that's it. You know, people have asked me, how have you gone on this long? Because it's going on 13, 14 years of arguing with the church. And I said, I have this very irrational conviction that I am right. And, (laughs) (laughs) you know? To our listeners, thank you for joining the conversation and sharing your reactions and what has stirred new in you. Season 1 introduced discussions from freedom of speech to freedom of choice. If we hold our rights for speech as sacred, why would the rights for women to control decisions over their body be different? The purpose was to leave oxygen for you to explore these questions in your time, space, and with others. Are there more conversations to be had? Yes, and we might come back to those in time. For now, we leave you with these. To learn more about what's coming up in Season 2, head to our website at anatomyofchange.org. Anatomy of Change is executive produced by Tay Moeller, with post-production, editing, and mixing by James Fleegey. Special thanks to Jamie Manson for being our guest on the season finale episodes and to Anne Trumbull for testing and elevating this first season. The original series' music, titled Reborn, was composed by Adrian Berenguer. Additional music featured in this episode by Savon Talmore, Rosa, Midtro, Rue, Artie So, Michael F.K., Kyle Preston, and James Fleegey. Our website, where you can listen to all episodes, featured music, and find companion content, is anatomyofchange.org. The end of the world at the palm of my hand When it all goes to hell